The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. You'll find this on page 299 of your pew Bible. 1 Kings 17. We're going to pick up in verse 7 as we continue in our series, Act of Grace, looking at the life of Elijah. Remember that last week Elijah had been sent to the brook at Kerith where he was fed by the ravens. And now we pick up in verse 7. After a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. As we prepare our hearts to hear from him, let's stand together and sing our song of preparation. I ask the Lord. Let's stand together and sing to his glory.
Father, we do indeed want to grow in faith and love and every grace. And so we pray, Lord, that you would come and speak to us, speak clearly, enable us to hear clearly, that we would find our all in you and find that when we have you, we need nothing else. So be with us during this time, we ask in Jesus' perfect and matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. If you were to write a list of the hardest things that you've ever done, what would be on that list? What are the things that come to mind when you think of the hardest things that you have ever done? I bet as we looked at that list, we would find that these hard and difficult things also turned out to be some of the most meaningful or valuable things. Lots of things in life are harder than we think, but end up being worth it. As we endure and persevere and make our way through, we look back in the rearview mirror with the benefit of hindsight and are grateful, perhaps even glad, that we went through those things. Lots of things in life are harder than you think, but end up being worth it. It's true in our personal lives. Marriage is a great example of that. We put on a marriage conference because the leaders in this church know that marriage is not easy. How do the leaders in this church know that? They're married, right? We understand that it's, it's difficult. Um, the, the romance of uh, the wedding ceremony and the life that has begun then soon meets with challenges and difficulties and trials and at marriage it's harder than we think but of course it is better than we think when we persevere and endure and learn to love one another well we are of course glad that we did or in a professional life sometimes things are harder than than you might think i think for for a lot of us our professional training is something that we look back on and we are glad that we did it and glad that we never have to do it again i definitely feel that way about seminary I'm sure anyone who has been through something similar, law school, med school, whatever your arena is, will feel the same way. Or even in the activity, sort of the leisure activities, things are often harder than they seem, but worth persevering. I am a Scot who doesn't play golf, and it's very disappointing to lots of people, especially when they're looking for a fourth, you know, and they think, that guy, he'll be great. And they're like, no, um, never, never really played. Uh, And when I have played, it's been a profoundly frustrating experience. But I'm assured by people that do play golf that, yes, golf is harder than you might think. It's harder than it looks. But it's worth it for that one sweet shot that you hit that goes straight down the fairway or that one chip that goes right on the green or that one putt that goes right 
in the hole. Incredibly frustrating, and yet worth persevering. Many things in life are like this. And today, in our text, in 1 Kings 17, we're introduced to a woman who teaches us that the same is true in our spiritual lives. Following God is harder than we think. But following God is also better than we think. Following God can be harder than we think, but it is also better than we think. Life with Jesus is not easy, but it is worth it. It is eternally worth it. That's the lesson of this woman that we meet. Before spending some time with her and reflecting upon this principle, let's set the scene by noting two important truths in the context of this text. Two important truths to set the scene. First of all, we see in this text that God extends grace to unlikely places. God is a God who extends his grace to unlikely places. Elijah has been at the brook by Kerith, and now he is sent to Zarephath, sent to a widow at Zarephath. And her mailing address is a little surprising to us. Zarephath was a coastal town. It was located between Tyre and Sidon, but it was not one of these nice coastal towns that you would like to go vacation at, like, you know, Virginia Beach. Elijah is not here gathering his swimming gear, looking forward to this trip. Why? First of all, because it's a 75-mile journey from Kerith, where he has been. It's 75 miles through desert, a difficult trip to get there. More significantly, though, Zarephath is located in a hostile territory. It's ruled by Ethbaal. You may remember from last week that there was evil King Ahab, and he was married to an evil woman called Jezebel. Well, Ethbaal is Jezebel's father. So he is uh, not one of God's followers. He is not from among Israel. He is an evil, wicked man. And the Lord says to Elijah, I am sending you into this place. There I will provide for you. He has been sent into the very heart of the land from which the idolatry that's decimating Israel has come. So he's not being sent into a good zip code. This is not the kind of place where you want to buy a house. This is not the kind of place where you want to send your kids to school. He's being sent into a dark region. The theological point, the practical point that's being made here is that if God's people reject his grace, he will continue to extend it to others, even to his enemies. God is a God with uh, lavish grace. And yes, he pours it out upon his people. And if they reject it, he will continue to pour it out, pouring it out upon the unlikely, pouring it out upon his enemies. Grace extends to unlikely places. This is good news. Why? Because we are the unlikely. Very careful when you read scripture to, to not too often associate yourself with the hero. In fact, never associate yourself with the hero. As we read through scripture, uh, these uh, heroes of the faith are, are generally a counterexample to ourselves. We are much more closely aligned with the uh, Israelites who are fearful and idolatrous, with uh, those of Zarephath who are enemies of God. Indeed, in Romans 5 we read that it's while we were enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God extends grace to unusual places. God extends grace to his enemies, and that is good news for me today. That is good news for us today. Because God has done the same for us. He has reached out 
to us by his grace. Through the love of Christ, he has offered us forgiveness, offered us relationship, offered us uh, peace and rest in him. Not because we're his friends, we're his enemies, but because he is gracious and loves us. This, of course, gives us a great sense, a great atmosphere that we want in our church of joyful humility. We recognize that we're not loved by God because of anything we've done. We want to be humble. But because he does love us, we are, we are a glad people. And we want that atmosphere to permeate all that we are and all that we do. Grace extends to unlikely places. The second thing we see as we set the scene is that grace also extends through unlikely sources. Grace extends to unlikely places, but also extends through unlikely sources. So, verse 7, the brook has dried up, but God's provision has not dried up. But the source of his continued provision is surprising. He sends Elijah to Zarephath and there to a widow. To a widow, verse 9. He is not sending Elijah off to his embassy. He is not sending Elijah off to a prominent supporter or a well-resourced follower. Verse 12 shows us the condition of this woman. We could describe it in the first place as dismal. In verse 12 we read that she has but a little flour and a little oil. No bank account, no savings, no resources to draw on. All that she has is contained in this jar and this jug. And even they are nearly empty. Not only dismal, but also hopeless. Hopeless. We read in verse 12 that she is gathering sticks, that she might go make a meal for her and her son, and then die. She has no future beyond her next meal. She has no expectation or anticipation beyond this very day, for she is sure that she will die. And God chooses this woman in her dismal, hopeless state to be the source of his provision for Elijah. Grace extends through unlikely sources. Again, I find this very encouraging. Very encouraging. I don't know if you... you live a lot of your life feeling that you're sort of a mediocre Christian? You know people who are really passionate about Jesus, and you know people with great gifts to serve him, and you've you know, you rub shoulders with them, perhaps here in this church. But you yourself feel just a, a little mediocre. You don't feel like you're the kind of person that God's going to do much through. You don't really recognize what your gifts are or how you might make any sort of tangible difference to the church. Well, be careful. God may make you a pastor. <laughs> or he may use you like this widow. God uses ravens. And God uses widows. And God uses things that are unlikely. And so if you find yourself in this place where you lack the confidence to see how you might be used by God, be encouraged. All that's required is a willingness. In fact, you are, you, if you doubt your ability, you are qualified and ready to serve him because God delights to do things through our weakness so that his glory might be made known. So those two things, God's grace extends to unlikely places, and God's grace extends through unlikely sources. It's in this principle that we see our woman uh, appearing and uh, teaching us this principle, that following God is harder than we think, but that following God is also better than we think. Let's look first of all at the fact that following God is harder than we think. 
The woman saw this in two ways. She saw that following God was harder than she had thought in two ways. First of all, because God calls her to sacrifice. God calls her to sacrifice. How does the all-powerful, all-knowing God respond to her crushing poverty? How does he interact with her in the midst of her dismal and hopeless situation? He doesn't come along and offer her anything. Instead, he comes along and asks her to feed his prophet. She has next to nothing, and even what she has, she is then asked to give away. It's an incredibly hard command. It's like you don't ask a beggar for their spare change, and you don't ask this woman for a meal. It's an incredibly hard command, asking her to sacrifice. I don't know what the biggest sacrifices you may have made are, perhaps personal, uh, perhaps financial, perhaps relational. This woman's sacrifice certainly meets and exceeds any of my own. And I find this a great challenge to myself and to us as we are people who struggle with uh, generosity and the size of mortgage we should have and where we should send our kids to school and all these sorts of thoughts. Uh, This woman was prepared to give everything that she had. Following God was harder, though, than she thought. God required her to sacrifice, but then secondly, we see that she learned this principle in that God required her to suffer. God required her to suffer. Look with me at verse 17. The nice progress this story has been making is shattered when the widow's son becomes ill and then her son dies. Terribly traumatic event in at least two ways. First of all, on the very obvious level, her son has just died and the anguish of verse 18 shows that she held him near and dear to herself. Anyone who has lost a child or has reflected upon such things can well understand the anguish that she is going through just now, the present sorrow that she feels from losing this son. Secondly, and perhaps less obviously, it's important for us to remember that as a widow, her son was particularly important as he would be the means for her future financial security and stability. She had no husband who would have put plans in place to care for her, and so it was entirely dependent upon her children, and now we read that this son has died. She loses her present hope, but also her future hope as well. And I don't know about you, but as I read through this text and as I worked my way through it, it's a puzzling development. A puzzling development. Be careful when you're reading through these things not to just jump to the end. You know, we know how this works out. But this woman at this time did not know how this worked out. And it's a, a strange occurrence to take place. God enters this woman's life. He seems to be at work. And then he removes this boy from her world. God blesses and then he baffles. He provides and then he perplexes. It's hard for us to understand why this has happened. And if we were in her situation, it would be hard for us to understand what God was doing. It's sad that her only resource is to turn, verse 18, to blaming herself. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Not being able to figure out what's happening, she blames herself and thinks, well, this must be a God who is here to bring vengeance and punishment because I am a sinner. Following God is harder than we think. This woman came to understand this as she was called to sacrifice and called to suffer. And of course, the same is true for us. Following God 
is harder than we think. I heard a pastor say recently that there has never been a generation less prepared for hardship than our generation. Never been a generation less prepared for hardship than our generation. True for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of our incredible resources. The incredible resources that we here in this land have been blessed with. And so the majority of our problems are fairly low level and can be addressed through our education or our finances. Most of the things that come into our sphere of influence are things that we can work at. And DC people, we love to do that. We love to work at it. We love to fix it. We love to bring the solution to whatever the problem would be. Of course, when cancer comes, when you lose a loved one, our education and our resources aren't able to speak to those urgent needs. A second reason, though, why we're so unprepared, it really comes in the fact that we have shifted so steadily and so profoundly away from the gospel and away from our relationship with God. We have replaced the relationship with God with going to play golf. We have replaced our relationship with God with going to the mall. Now, go to the mall and play golf. Nothing wrong with that. My point is that we have replaced our relationship with God with those things. And it turns out that when your child dies, golf can't help you. It turns out that when your marriage falls apart, going to the mall doesn't help. It doesn't give us a framework, a paradigm, a worldview that enables us to work our way through hardship and suffering. And the reason this gospel is so important is it comes to us and says, listen, this is going to be harder than you think it is. And we're going to talk about that so that we're not caught off guard. Part of my job as a pastor is to try and put steel in my own bones and try to put steel in your bones to get ready for the fact that these hardships uh, will come. For many of you, they have come. For many of you, you are in the midst of them now. Uh, For the rest of us, they are coming. We need to reflect upon these things, realizing that the gospel life isn't a cakewalk. It doesn't spare us from sacrifice. It doesn't spare us from suffering. In fact, the gospel life requires those things. So we don't want to be a people who, are, who respond as if something strange were happening to us when we go through hardship. Individually, we don't, we don't want to be those people who are the seed that was scattered on shallow soil seemed to flourish, but as soon as difficulty come, withered away. We don't want to be those people. We want to have deep roots that are robust because we know that the hardships of life will come. And as a church, we want to be the same way. As a church, we want to be the same way. I love this season in our church right now. It's a joyful, optimistic, happy season. And we need to make the most of that because the Lord has given it to us and given us this peace and this unity for a purpose. He has given it to us that we might advance his kingdom, and there's a lot of good times that await us. But I'm also not naive enough to think that this honeymoon will last forever. You're going to email me unhappy about something. You're going to call. We're going to have to work through some things together. And that's good. I'm ready for that. Because we're not going to be caught off guard as a church that, yeah, Hard things in personal lives, hard things in our church life. We're not going to be caught off guard. It's a challenge to us to come to grips with this fact 
Following God is harder than we think. Before moving on, I do want to say that yes, that's a challenge, but it's also encouraging. It's also encouraging. Why is it encouraging? If you're in the midst of the hardship right now, if you are in the midst of the heartache, heartache, the loss, the depression, if you find yourself currently experiencing the hardship of which we speak, know that God is not absent from this. In fact, your hardship is in many ways a sign of life. It's proof that God is working. Spiritual turmoil is a sign that the Spirit is at work. And it's encouraging because you can know that just as you have looked in the rearview mirror and seen God work great things from previous struggles, so he will do so again. So he will take this loss and give you a greater appreciation for life. He will take this depression and reprioritize your agenda. He will take this heartache and give you a new experience of his love. When we are running on empty, God is normally near. So be encouraged by this. Following God is harder than we think. It's a challenge, but it's an encouragement too. Not a very motivating sermon. There is another point. There is another point. Following God, yes, it's harder than we think, but following God is also better than we think. Following God is harder than we think, but following God is better than we think. The women in our text experience this again in two ways. First of all, in the face of sacrifice, the Lord provided bread. In the face of her sacrifice, the Lord provided bread. He commands her to sacrifice, but he attaches to this command a promise, a promise that is then the basis or the means by which she is able to obey. And that is the way God always works with us. He never gives us random arbitrary commands that we are to somehow suck up and work our way through. He gives us promises that fuel our obedience, promises that give us a reason or encouragement to obey. But we see her promise in verse 14, where we, she is told that the flour and the oil will not run out until the rain returns. Until that day when the land will produce its own food for you, I will feed you direct, directly. A miraculous provision of oil and flour. Verse 15, she believes the promise that is given and she obeys. Verse 16, we then see the unfolding of this miracle. And I love it because it's a, it's a continuous miracle. The woman gets up each morning and she gets dressed and she goes upstairs and she wakes her son and she gets him ready and she goes back downstairs, enters the kitchen and grabs hold of that jar and that jug, trusting, hoping that they're still full. Takes off the lids, what does she find? The Lord has provided again. The Lord has provided again an incredible picture of faith for us. And can you imagine how, you know, we're saying following God's better than we think. Imagine what an amazing experience that must have been for this woman. Today after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, continue to find the Lord providing for her in such a faithful way. Breakfast would never have tasted so good. Never have tasted so good. God called her to sacrifice, but he provided her with bread. She trusts and he delivers. The Lord is good to her, and following him is better than she knew. 
Secondly, though, and equally as profoundly, the Lord teaches her this principle. Yes, in the face of sacrifice, giving her bread, but also in the face of her suffering, he provides her with resurrection. In the, pra- place of, in the face of her suffering, he provides her with resurrection. Look with me at verse 17 as we trace just this amazing series of events. In verse 17, the boy dies. We've reflected upon the heartache that this would cause. Heartache that it's easy for us to understand. Verse 19, we get this really tender picture where Elijah comes to the mother and she picks up the lad from her lap and, she, and he takes this breathless, lifeless form upstairs in his arms and lays the boy down in his bedroom upon his own bed. Then in verses 20 and 21, we get this amazing prayer where Elijah puts himself in the widow's shoes and prays with an urgency as if this boy were his own son. It's a great model of how we should pray for people when they are suffering, to weep with those who weep. You can feel Elijah's pain for this woman as he cries out to the Lord. Verse 22, God hears and the boy lives. The life of the child came into him again. And he revived. Elijah, verse 23, again, I love just the the scene that's painted for us. Scoops the boy up again, walks back downstairs with this living, breathing, vibrant child and places him in the mother's lap. She thought she was just going to get bread. And the Lord brought her resurrection. Following God was better than she thought. And so in verse 24, we get... The climax of the passage. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Her suffering becomes the gateway to insight. It becomes the means by which she is able to understand who the Lord really is and how he wants to relate to her. No longer viewing him as distant, uninterested, capricious, but viewing him as one who has made himself real to her, all because she suffered. Following God is better than we think. Of course, as we close, we must say that the same is true for us. The same is true for us. God provides for our daily needs, and he will give you bread. I don't know where it is that you need bread, today. It may not be a financial thing. It may be uh, a relational thing, a professional thing. An area in your life that you need the Lord to show up and provide. The Lord will show up and provide with daily bread. We reflected last week upon the ravens and how they brought him, uh, they brought Elijah uh, bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. This morning we've reflected upon the widow and how the Lord and morning by morning, renewed her flower, renewed her oil, again showing us that the Lord doesn't give grace in lump sums, but gives it in installments. And so for you this morning, whatever you are in the midst of, whatever the heartache, the struggle, the worry is, know there's grace for you today. When you wake up in the morning, there'll be grace for you tomorrow. And you don't need to worry about tomorrow's grace, because tomorrow isn't here. And it will look after itself. The Lord provides for us bread. What he calls us to do is get up, get dressed, get our kids ready, go to the kitchen, 
and just see if he provides. As we do that, we find that he's faithful. Following Jesus, following God is better than we think. He provides for our daily needs. He gives us bread. He also provides for our our eternal needs in giving us resurrection. Last point. He provides for our eternal needs by giving us (coughs) resurrection. The resurrection of this son is, of course, just a foreshadow, a, a pointer to the true resurrection that would come. But what happened to the widow's son eventually? He died again. The point of the passage is to direct our attention to the one who rose from the dead and did not die again. This pattern of resurrection that God can make dead things live, which is fulfilled in Jesus at the cross and then at the tomb. We are the people who have been given the resurrection of Jesus that we might come and find that our dead souls can live and that the dead things in our lives can live. A people who are found in him. And the key for us to see that following God is better than we think is to see him. Quick story, I'm closing. So my wife and I are having this depressingly inexorable realization that we're becoming our parents. I was going to say no one tells you this will happen, but they do tell you. You just don't believe them. Um, And little by little, it's happening. Actually, yeah, I'm way gone. I'm already incredible like my father. But uh, Rosie is also becoming a little bit like her, her mother. And one of the strange ways in which she's become this way is she's started to be a little bit nervous about flying, um, which is strange because we've done a lot of flying. We've you know, been all sorts of places, and it's never really been a problem. But these last few years, she's started to get a little nervous when we're flying. And it's funny because we'll be sitting at the airport in the, you know, the kind of waiting area, and we'll be looking out the window, and we'll see all the planes come in. And Rosie will start giving me a running commentary on the planes. So, you know, oh, a hover plane is like that one, and she'll point to some massive plane, right? And I'm like, you know, we're flying to New York. It's probably not going to be that one, right? And then she'll say, oh, I hope it's not one of those. You know, the ones you see that kind of roll in with propellers. and <laughs> um, you, you know, she sort of like starts, starts to analyze um, which plane we'll be in. And of course... Sitting there having this conversation, the preacher in me was like, yes, illustration. (laughs) Our confidence is largely dependent upon what we're found in. Our confidence is largely dependent on what we're found in. And through the resurrection of Jesus, we can be found in him. We can be found in first class. We can be found with the storm raging outside and the glass of champagne inside. Not because things are easy. We've, we've covered that. It's harder than we think. But because things are also better than we think. In the end, our God is a God who gives us far more than he ever demands from us. Following him is harder than we think, but following him is better than we think. Life with Jesus isn't easy, but it's worth it. It's eternally worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word and for this woman who teaches us so much. By her example and by her faith, we are taught that following you can be hard and yet that following you can be glorious. Harder than we think, better than we think. Would we be a people who are found in Jesus, so that we might endure 
the hard and trying times from the safety and security in him. We pray these things in his perfect and matchless name. Amen.